You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Well, now we come to our time in the Word of God. It is no doubt the highlight for us as it sets really the stage for everything we've already done and everything we intend to do in the days ahead. And that is the Word of God is set at the center of God's people that it would be at the center of their life and reverberate out accordingly. And so with that in mind, we ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to just listen along. And if you uh, would like to have a Bible, we have them for free uh, for you to take home with you. They're at the Welcome Center. Uh, Any of that stuff that's there for you is a gift there for you, including a copy of the Scriptures. But Matthew is where we're at. It's where we've been. It's where we're going to be. In the, in the weeks ahead still, as we're working our way through the, through the writings of Matthew, one of the earliest eyewitnesses records of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, who made this outlandish claim that he was the Son of God, which would be preposterous if it was not true. But as we've been seeing over this last year, it is indeed proven time and time and throughout history to have been true and is true. We can all think of examples in life where someone has said one thing and done another, has made a claim about some person that they are, but they're actually not, has proposed ideas that I think other people should do, but they do not do them themselves. This is a common problem in history. It's a common problem personally. It is indeed how we often interact with each other. Can we trust one another? Can what we say we say we believe is what we really believe? Is it how we're really going to act and do? I've been watching over the last couple of months, sort of chipping away different episodes on Netflix of a show titled Watching uh, the Greatest Events of World War II in Color. If you've never seen this, uh, I recommend it if you like to geek out on that kind of stuff. If not, you might fall asleep like some of my family members do, but I enjoy it. One of the things that I learned in this uh, series of shows that World War II, which took place from 1939 to 1945, over a six-year span, but that in 1939, Adolf Hitler made an agreement before the start of World War II that Germany and Russia signed a pact together, Hitler and Stalin, and the treaty promised that neither nation would attack the other And it laid out a plan that they would divide the nations of Eastern Europe between them. Yet two years later, in 1941, that's exactly what Adolf Hitler did. He attacked Russia, coming into Russia, overwhelming the country, at least for a short amount of time, in the initial ground that he took, only to then be repelled back eventually. The truth is, Hitler said he had an interest in doing something that in time was proven he had no interest in actually keeping it. He had no interest in keeping his word. The treaty was only meant to be a temporary measure until he can do what he wanted to do, which was to attack Russia. This is not unique to international relations. This is even common on personal levels of interaction. People can say that they intend to do one thing, but then act accordingly. Or, in a bit of a self-righteous way, they can tell another of what they should do themselves, but they do not do that themselves. 
Or in another way, they can see so clearly what someone else is doing wrong, but they fail to recognize that in their own life as well. We see this. We've been on the other side of this. We know what this is like. Well, tonight in our text in Matthew chapter 21, I think I said earlier to you chapter 20, but Matthew 21, the issue tonight is about hypocrisy and self-righteousness. People who say they are followers of God but are not. Meanwhile, they denounce others who actually do follow God but refuse to accept it because of where those people came from and how they once acted themselves. The title of the message this evening is The Pot Calling the Kettle Black, Seeing the Sin of Others but Missing It in Your Own Life. Missing it in your own life. And in Matthew 21, starting in verse 23, we're going to see three things. Number one, Jesus is challenged. Number two, the religious are confronted. And then number three, the sinners are saved. Let's break it down. Number one, Jesus is challenged. Look with me at verse 23. It just comes in one single verse here. Verse 23, Matthew writes, when he, referring to Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things who gave you this authority? Now, for those of you who are just joining us for the first time tonight or perhaps maybe missed out on what we covered the last couple of weeks, you maybe have been traveling, let me just make sure we're all on the same page here as far as what's been happening. In the earlier record of what's taken place, just in the previous days, Jesus has really turned some heads and he's turned some tables. And he's done this because he's come into Jerusalem with quite a bit of pomp and circumstance. He's come with quite a bit of fanfare. People have been taking off their clothes and laying in front of a donkey he's been riding in. They've been cutting off branches from a tree and putting it on this pathway. All of these have been acts of submission, acts of praise, as the crowd before Jerusalem has been marching alongside of him into Jerusalem, giving him praise. And the crowd's been crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. So it had been an amazing time. An amazing scene, and yet we see that that crowd, as we learned in the previous weeks, is not necessarily what they appear to be. But then Jesus, and the next day Jesus is in the temple, having been in the Bethany area, he comes into Jerusalem, is in the temple, and what he sees disgusts him. And we see a display of godly righteousness, of godly anger as he comes into the temple, flipping over tables, denouncing his exorbitant practices, and telling people that the word of God, the house of God, is being mocked and denied. As if that wasn't crazy enough, he then is healing people, and it might have been lost in you, but let me make sure it's not lost in you today. If you look back, if you will, at verse 14 of chapter 21, after this incident of the flipping over the tables, it says, and the lame came to him in the temple, excuse me, verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Why is this crazy itself? Because, friends, Blind people and lame people, because of their handicap, would not be allowed in the temple area. They would have been known previously to be excluded from that. But now here is Jesus doing all kinds of head-turning actions. And the religious, the scholastic, the seemingly people who know their Bibles the best, show up and they have a question for Jesus. And the question is basically this. Who do you think you are? And you can see it specifically how they word it in verse 23. 
what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Friends, if we just have a, a minute to just reflect on this question, though the cultural experience might be 2,000 years removed, though the scene might be something like you've never seen in your lifetime, the question actually is strikingly familiar. It's a question of authority. A question of authority. Authority, ironically, it's placed at the question is the place at the feet of Jesus himself. These religious people want to know who does Jesus think that he is? This question of authority is because Jesus is doing things that they do not like. He, Jesus, is saying things that they do not like. Jesus is with people that they do not like, and they're wondering who does he think that he is? This issue of authority is not unique to that time. It's common even to today. People don't like authority, especially if it does something that they don't like. Yet the truth is, every one of us, not just in this room, but in society at large, every one of us is under authority. People like to dodge it as much as they can. Child to parent, wife to husband, employee to employer, citizens to government, church member to church leader. And we like to use exceptions of why the authority does not apply to us to justify our disobedience a majority of the time, when it's only been a minority of the time that there are such exceptions. Because the reality is, if we can acknowledge this just in a moment of transparency, we love our autonomy. And we will welcome God's authority as long as it doesn't ask us to make much change. Right? People cry for God to be just in the lives of others, but not necessarily their life. This is why it's even difficult for Christians to commit to a church, because people love their autonomy, yet they desire to be a part of community. They involve themselves enough to benefit enough from some of it, but want to maintain enough distance to not be held responsible to it. But the reality about authority is that at the end of the day, all of it's delegated. Ultimately, there is only one who has ultimate final authority. It's God. It's God. There's only one being in all of existence from whom authority rests, because there's only one who is fully omniscient, knowing all things. Only one who is fully omnipotent, meaning he can do all things. Only one who is omnipresent, meaning he is present in all places. There's only one who is perfectly righteous and holy, who has without sin, without any, in any disobedient act of rebellion, there's only one who can set the standard for righteousness, God. All of authority in heaven and under heaven on earth is delegated by God to his creation. Admittedly, sometimes it is misused and abused. Sometimes it is neglected and distorted, but nevertheless, it is delegated from God. This is why the Word of God is so important. For those of you who are not Christians, please understand that when you gather with Christians, the reason why a gathering of Christians should be centered around the Word of God is because everything else is opinion. 
Everything else is experience. Everything else is emotion. Everything else is tradition. Everything else is some type of family background. Friends, we have a variety of that present here in the room this evening, but there is one divine, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, and clear source. It is the Word of God. All of life is under the Word of God. That's why at Grace Church we sing the Word, read the Word, pray the Word, preach the Word, and desire to obey the Word. At Grace Church we have a confession of faith. This is our doctoral statement. What do we believe about any number of things? Well, the first thing that we say is our confession of faith about the Scriptures. Listen to what it said there on the screen. Of the Scriptures, we believe that the Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction that it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter, that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union, and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. It does not matter what your mom says. I mean, no disrespect to your mom. It does not matter what your elders say. I mean, no disrespect to the gift of elders. Those are only right in so much as they actually represent what the Word of God says. Back in our text, Jesus does not say here what you'd expect him to say. The question seems like an easy one. This is a softball pitch for Jesus. By whose authority are you doing this? Jesus says himself later on in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. But it's actually not what Jesus does here. Jesus does something very surprising. He says, okay, you have a question for me, I have a question for you. If you answer mine, I'll answer yours. They're like, okay, all right, what do you got? What do you got? And that takes us to number two, the religious are confronted. Look at verse 24. The religious are confronted. Jesus answered them, I also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here it is, verse 25. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, it's understandable right now if you're like thoroughly confused. Here's what's happening. John the Baptist, for those of you not familiar with the Bible, John the Baptist basically was a prophet who up to this point was alive in the life of Jesus. He's actually a half-relative of Jesus. And he was, came and broadcast and talked about repentance, that people would understand their sin and the need for it. And then Jesus eventually came and began his earthly ministry, was baptized by John the Baptist, which John said, I can't even untie your sandals. I mean, I'm not even fit for that role. But Jesus says, you should do this, that prophecy would be fulfilled. And John says about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then later on, John doesn't stop preaching, and he basically tells those who are in political leadership, hey, you're having... You're having basically immoral relationships with your brother's wife. 
He didn't like, they didn't like that to have him arrested and eventually have him beheaded, which we read about earlier in Luke 13, or John, uh, Matthew 13. But you got to understand about something about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is like a viral hit. Everybody knows John. In fact, some would debate at this point, John is more famous than Jesus by some people's estimation. So when Jesus poses this question, it is a loaded question. He wants them to answer the question, by what means, speaking of authority, if you're so interested in authority, under whose authority was John the Baptist doing his work? Was it from God or was it just of him, of man? Now, why is this so significant? It's significant because they know the answer, but they don't want to share it. They don't want to get distracted by the facts. It's undeniable as to the response. So the religious have a dilemma. Who do they say that John the Baptist was? And they eventually take the cowardly answer, the cowardly route, and they won't answer. They won't answer because they don't want to deal with the reality of what Jesus is pointing to. So Jesus is like, well, since you won't answer, let me tell you a story. And now it gets to the first confrontation. Look at it with me here in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. What Jesus is talking about in this parable, this story, is a story of these two sons. The story of the two sons who have both been called to respond to the father. The first said he would not go, but later changed his mind and went. The other immediately said he would go and work, but he never showed up. Never showed up. And Jesus, in posing this to the scribes there, posing this to the religious leaders there, asked them, which one is the right one? Which one actually obeyed? The one who said or the one who did? What's happening here in the text is the answer is obvious. Jesus immediately applies this to the religious leaders. John chapter 5, verse 35 says, there were some religious leaders who responded to the ministry of John the Baptist, but by and large, the majority of them did not. Their actions proved that they were like the second son, 
On the other hand, surprisingly to many of them, tax collectors and prostitutes received the message of John and did the will of the Father. Therefore, they would be allowed to entrance into the kingdom of God, but the religious leaders who did not repent and believe would be denied entrance. The religious leaders would be standing condemned. Let's put this in modern-day scenario. Modern-day scenario is there's an invitation to respond to the gospel. There's an invitation to hear from God's word. And there are those who say, you, you, you know, I have no interest in Christianity. I have no interest in religion. I don't believe that there is a God. I don't care about Jesus of Nazareth. I certainly don't think he's the Christ, the son of God. I'm not interested in that. And the way in which I live, I live in a way that, trust me, there's no God in my life. I do what I want. If anybody is God, I am God. I determine what I do. I determine my origin, my meaning, my morality, and my destiny. I am at the center of what I believe. That invitation initially falls in such ears, and they do not respond. Meanwhile, there's another group, invitation to come. Come and hear from God's word. Come and hear about Jesus. Come and respond to what he says. And such individuals, you know, perhaps raised in a family of Christianity, perhaps have Christian friends, perhaps appreciate kind of the the benefits of Christianity, like, you know, I'm in. If there's people there, I'm there. If there's interest there, I'm there. And so they say they want to go, and they go. Meanwhile, the first group, the modern-day tax collectors and prostitutes, the strippers and the gamblers, the ungodly, who think, you know how long it's been since I've been in church? Or, you know, I've actually never even been to church. I don't even own a Bible. I wouldn't know what I would do with a Bible if I got one. I wouldn't know where to begin. I don't understand half the words in it. One of the ministries that Grace Church is involved with is a ministry called Scarlet Hope. It's a ministry of gospel-centered women reaching into and visiting and building relationships with women in the adult entertainment industry, which is a fancy way of saying strip clubs here in Miami, where they visit them, building relationships with them to connect with them, to be able to help them think through alternative ways of making incomes, be able to help them understand perhaps alternative ways of living, including perhaps where they're actually living, begin to bring the clarity of the gospel to them, help those who perhaps are being trafficked to be able to work with law enforcement, to help them be rescued from that where most of them have been abused and are being mistreated. And many of which, when they connect with them, the last thing they think is, I want to go to church. And the last thing they think is that anybody in church would ever want me to come to their church. Because the common thing that they think is, if you knew what I've done, and you know what I've experienced, I can promise you I'd mess up your little pretty church. In fact, they say that the average time it takes from initial contact to when a woman like that would actually visit church for the first time is about two years. These are the kind of people that Jesus is talking about when he's talking to the religious elite. When he's saying to them, when John the Baptist came to preach and preach about repentance, you know who did not respond? The people you would expect. 
You know who did eventually respond? The people you would not have expected. And he gives his classification, a group that we've repeatedly referenced throughout the teachings of Matthew, these tax collectors, these seemingly traitorous individuals who are not just politically of a different party than some other people in the room, but they seemingly have cheated on their entire country. They're profiting on the backs of other people struggling economically, and they're giving it to the incoming military force. These people and the people who give themselves away for sexual purposes, for their own financial well-being, these people, Jesus says, responded in repentance. And he says to these chief priests and elders, and they will go into the kingdom of God. Here's the reality for them at that time. The immoral make the self-righteous uncomfortable. Why? Because religion is safe. Christianity is not. Religion is respectable. And Christianity can be scandalous. The self-righteous will use morality and purity as the excuse. They will say that you can stay out there in the outer courts of the Gentiles. You can stay out there with those who are unclean. but they don't want you to come in. They have their purity laws. They have their modesty standards. They have their behavior expectations. God has established them, and we intend to monitor them. But here's the truth. Here's the truth of the chief priests and the scribes, the religious elite, and perhaps many of us even today have a trouble with. Loving the broken is hard, and it asks a lot of you. Many people don't want to love that much. It's easier to love people who are like you. It's safer. It's easier. It's cleaner. People that you don't have to work that much for. Loving the broken is messy. And there's no guarantee that it'll quote-unquote work. I mean, after all, what if they go back to their tax collecting? What if they go back to their prostitution? What if they go back to their drugs? What if they walk away back into the world and return to being a prostitute? What if they leave your church and return to the worldly lifestyle? Many people are tempted to believe, well, it didn't work and be cautious of ever doing it again. Loving others enduringly and humbly requires an honest evaluation of yourself. At the core of the issue is this question. Do the chief priests and the scribes see themselves as much different? They did. And therein lied the problem. The same problem stands for you and I today. When we begin to see ourselves as different than others around us, then we cease having compassion for them. Love and patience with them. It's also worth noting in the text in the first parable What does Jesus say that the first group said? Look at what he says. He says, and answered, verse 29, speaking to the son, I will not, but afterward he changed his mind and he went. He went to the other son and he said the same. And he said, I will go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? He said, the first. Friends, what's so interesting here is Jesus is getting at what is a cultural phenomenon even today in the world. People who profess 
to be followers of Christ, profess that they will do the will of Christ, but do not. So the challenge today in a lot of churches is if we can just get you to do something like raise a hand. If we can get you to do something like just repeat some words. If we can get you to do something like walk an aisle, which in and of themselves are not intrinsically wrong. I'm not, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. But this idea, if I can just get you to profess you believe something, we'll call that a win and call it a day. But what does Jesus actually say in the text are those who actually did the will of the Father? It's the ones who actually acted. Now, the point here is not that you're saved by your works. The point here is to say your works show if you have been saved. That your profession, divorced from any following subsequent practice, is a questionable profession. They profess to be children of the kingdom of God, and yet they did not follow the word of God. They profess to be ambassadors for the word of God, and yet they would not themselves obey it themselves. And their hard heart was seen there, as you see in verse 32. Even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. Jesus isn't done with them. And tonight we're not done either. Look at verse 33. He says here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. They did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. We'll stop there. Here's what Jesus is doing. Many of you perhaps remember back in the days of school. Some of you are like, we're back in the days of school. I'm still in school. When you're in a class like biology, and you can play with these things called microscopes. Microscopes were these amazing devices where you could see things that the naked eye just could not see, which sometimes was awesome and sometimes was concerning. What actually is going on around us? But you know, on a microscope, you have this sort of ability with a lens to see from, you know, 10x, 100x, 1,000x, and like you just see things so closely, like, man, that's amazing, so much detail. What Jesus is doing here is he's basically taking the microscope of this conversation and he's turning it up a notch. He's going from 100x to 10x. He's going from dealing with his immediate audience, the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests and the elders, the immediate group he's talking to, and he's now backing up to 10x. He's talking about the entire nation of Israel. And he tells the story of this manager of this land, this owner of this land. What he's talking about is the people of Israel. This landlord went to a great expense to make this vineyard productive, rented out the vineyard to farmers who were to care for it. Harvest time came, the landowner sent his servants to collect what was rightfully his, but the tenant farmers mistreated the servants, beating one, killing another, and stoning a third. 
Other servants were sent to do the exact same thing and had the exact same results. Finally, in the story that Jesus is telling is a parable. He sends, the landlord sends his son, thinking that they would respect him. The farmers, however, reasoned that if they could get rid of the son, the land could finally be their own. So they kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. What's clear here is that Jesus is speaking of the nation of Israel that has been carefully prepared by God to be his fruitful vineyard. This is exactly what he says in Isaiah chapter 5. The care of the vine had been committed to the nation's religious leaders, but they had failed to acknowledge the master's right over them and had treated his messengers and his prophets horribly. And every time one came, they were rejected. Ultimately, they would even kill his son, the one who's talking right now in the text of Matthew 21. Outside of Jerusalem, they would scorn him and reject him and crucify him, turning him over to be killed. So look at verse 40. Jesus is telling the story. He says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Which is kind of crazy because if you go back to verse 31, he asked the question, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. And Jesus said, truly I say to the tax collector, the prostitute going to the kingdom of God before you. Like at this point, you're like, okay, I don't think I want to do a conversation with Jesus anymore. This never goes well for us. Like it would be better we put a hand over our mouth and stop talking. Because every time we open our mouths, it just gets worse. But they just go right along. And they answer what seems to be understandably an obvious question in verse 40. The owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do? Listen to what they say in verse 40. They say to him, he will put those wretches, those wretches, those despicable people to, to, to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. And it's like Jesus is saying, I, I couldn't have said it any better myself. You are exactly right. But he's basically saying, hey, this isn't just you and me having this conversation. The psalmist said this. What he does here in the text, you notice, verse 42, he quotes Psalm 118. Have you never read in the scriptures? Which he knows that they've read. It's, a, it's an in, indicting question. And then he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on those who reject him, who have every reason, experientially, intelligently, factually, to respond to him, and they reject him. I'm reminded of what George Whitfield said, a famous, arguably the most fruitful evangelist in the human history except for Jonah. He said, I'm convinced that a man could do a better job preaching the gospel, but a man could never preach a better gospel. We come to this text. I don't want it to be lost on the Christians in the room. Jesus is evangelizing here, and they're not listening. 
There is no greater communicator of God's word than God himself. And yet they would not respond. I mean, look at back to what it says in verse 40, uh, 32. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Referring to believing in John the Baptist. It's basically exactly what he's saying right here. In fact, go to verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they repented and asked for his forgiveness. No, it says they perceived they were speaking about them. Wow, that was quick. Verse 46, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Meaning, the crowd, they feared more the crowd than they feared God himself in the flesh. Friends, this is encouraging and challenging simultaneously to those being present here this evening. For those of you who are not Christians, I want to be very clear, and I mean this very kindly to you, you will never hear a better gospel than the gospel you're hearing tonight, which is sinners, the seemingly the most rejected society, can be loved by God. And yet, you also should recognize, for those of you who are Christians, you'll never find somebody who's a better evangelist than you, than Jesus himself, and they didn't respond themselves. Friends, this is more than just the persuasiveness of speech, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. This is a work that God has to do, as Ephesians 2 says. He has to make a person alive. He has to do what Jesus does. He has to give sight to the blind or they will never see. But as we saw back in chapter 20 of verse 33, Lord, let our eyes be opened. In verse 34, Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What's the common feature that ties everybody in this parable together and everybody in this room together? One word, humility. Humility. Your ability to recognize the need for it in your life, to hear from God and respond to God or not. And ironically, the people you would ex not expect humility from, we get it. And the people we would expect humility from, we don't. The people who seemingly know better, don't do better. And the people that we expect just much less from, shock us. Friends, the need for humility is when we see our need for repentance and mercy. Now, before you reward yourself with the humility badge, I'm going to ask you to declare yourself humble before God. I trust at that point, at some level, most of you, maybe not all of you, but most of you, if you even acknowledge that there is a God, could ask yourself the question, yeah, he is bigger than me, knows more than me. I'm asking you to ask this question. Do you view yourselves in relationship to the people around you in this room, in your church, in your family, in this city? Do you see yourself standing in the same level, the same plane with them as everybody else before that same God. The problem with the self-righteous that Jesus was talking about is they could see the sin of others, but they could not see their own sin. Here's how you know you're struggling in this area. If you're characterized by gossip. Why? Because gossip is basically the spreading of information, 
true or false, about the lives of another that you don't in any way feel a sense of compassion, responsibility, mercy, or love for. Because if you did, you wouldn't talk about them like that. You see yourself sort of out of that and above that. But functioning humility is to see anything in another and say, one, but for the grace of God, there go I. And two, I still yet go there as well at times myself, but in other areas. And I'm reminded to take a look at my own life, reminded to pray and to care and to pursue The third feature to this whole discussion is not just that Jesus is challenged and the religious are confronted, but profoundly, as we've already been seeing, third, in case you've been missing it, the sinners are saved. The sinners are saved. Verse 32, the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Verse 41, he let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. They know what it's like to be sinners and to know what it's like to be saved. Friend, if you think there's something I have done that I promise you is the small print on God's extension and offer of salvation and grace, there is nothing you can do that God's mercy cannot reach into that life and forgive you. If you but repent, if you but respond the same way that they responded to John the Baptist, if you see yourself acknowledging admittedly, honestly, before the Lord for who you are, there is mercy and grace. It's the one who will not that cannot. I'm reminded of this great quote by R.C. Sproul that we have for you. He says, I know of no organization other than the church that requires members to publicly declare themselves to be sinners before they can join. (laughs) How crazy is that? Welcome to humility, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to humility. But the beauty of that is to acknowledge that, is to then turn that into the conversation of how merciful and wonderful the Savior is. And to triumph in that fact. Here's a question for you to consider. Would you rather be known as an honest sinner or a lying hypocrite? Hmm? Would you rather be known as an honest sinner or a lying hypocrite? As one who repents in light of what you see in your life and finds mercy in God, or yet finds the continued speck in everybody else's eyes and everybody else's lives, but cannot see it in your own. And if that's true, then friend, I'd say, may God be merciful to you. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.